Thanks, Lauren. I'll give you a moment to find the passage, but we're reading from Genesis 18, 1 to 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance to his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be bought and then you may wash all your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat, so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way, now that you've come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sears of the finest flour, and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set those before them. While they ate, he stood them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I'll surely return to you about this next time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, <laughs> After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. Well, let me add my welcome to that of Lauren's before. My name's Mal York, I'm the senior minister here, and it's a real privilege to look further at this passage with you. Today we continue in our series and we come to another famous piece of history in the life of Abraham and Sarah. For those of you who have missed the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Genesis and specifically Abraham, God's first disciple. We've been thinking through what we learn about following God, about following Jesus from Abraham's life and the lessons that he learned. We've seen that God chose Abraham and called him to move out of his own land. God promised Abraham many descendants blessing for him and his descendants, and through them the whole world would be blessed. Finally, the promise of a land for his descendants to live in. But Abraham and Sarah were getting on in age and still unable to have children of their very own. And so they tried to bring about the fulfillment of these promises in their own way. We saw that in order to create an heir, Sarah suggested Abraham sleep with her maidservant, Hagar. However, God said he would not. Uh, God said, this would not be the child to whom your promises would be fulfilled. But rather, a child would come from Abraham and Sarah's own flesh, despite their age and circumstances. In chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
God made a covenant with Abraham. And last week we saw that God told Abraham to respond to him by humbly walking before him. And as a sign of this covenant, Abraham was to circumcise himself and his household. Abraham responded in faith by doing so. At the age of 99 years old, with poor sight and no medical degree, in my opinion, a true sign of faithful obedience to God's commands. Well, today we continue in Genesis and we'll see how God keeps his promises in his time and that God is on the side of those who are righteous. In the passage, we'll see that God is bringing about his purposes. Abraham is challenged to continue to believe despite the way things look to him. And we too will be challenged to do the same. But we will never see this unless God reveals it to us through his word and by his spirit. So let me lead us in prayer now as I ask God to speak to us clearly today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that we can gather together and look more at it. We pray that you'll speak to us by your spirit. Help us to understand what your promises to us are and how despite the circumstances around us, we can trust in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it would be helpful if you have that passage open that was just read out to us a few minutes ago, as I'll be referring to it throughout the talk. Well, the first aspect of this passage we see is that God is working out his purposes in his time. We see God keeping his promises despite what the situation looks like. Prior to this passage, we've seen that Abraham is an old man of 99 years. And so in verse 1 of the passage, we see him now sitting outside his tent. And we learn that the Lord appears to him there. He does so as three men approach him. We find out later that one of them is the Lord. Sarah, his wife is about 10 years behind Abraham in age, but also is there. However, inside the tent that Abraham was sitting out in front of, and she's listening in. Now see there in verses 2 to 8 that the three men come up to Abraham, and Abraham shows them respect. He recognises something about them and so runs around like a madman, getting food and drink and organising things for them. It's strange for someone, isn't it, who commands a household of servants. Yet he obviously recognises that the Lord is one of them, as otherwise he wouldn't have walked out to them, met them, and bowed down to them. But nevertheless, Abraham eats with them. And then they say the most amazing thing. Can you see it there in verse 10? Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Can you imagine hearing this news? It almost seems unthinkable that this would happen. Abraham will be a hundred years old in a year's time and Sarah is well beyond the years of being able to have a child. All the circumstances surrounding them would indicate that this would not be possible. But here the Lord is saying that in a year's time they will have a child. <laughs> Could you imagine them in a parenting group fending off those questions? Are you, you sure you're not the great-great-grandparents? How can you say you're the parents of this child? What a strange journey it's been for Abraham. 24 years ago, Abraham was originally called by God to leave this, his land and, and told that God would bless him with many descendants. And since then, he's been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. He would have been getting older and older and, and still no child. Sarah would have been aging, I'm sure very gracefully, but the doubts would have been kicking in. How is it, it even possible to have a child at our age? You can tell this is exactly what Sarah was thinking as she laughs. Can you see it there in verse 12? As this, this will happen, she thinks to herself. I'm old, I'm wearied, I'm resigned to the fact that this will not, not happen. 
But friends, what we learn from this passage is that this is the way of the Lord. The Lord is one who has his purposes and works things out in his own time. Look at his response to Sarah in verses 13 to 14. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. As I read this, I want to jump in and I want to say, why did Sarah laugh, Lord? Just look at her. That's why she laughed. Look at how old she looks. Look at how frail she is. How on earth do you expect her to have a child at her age? My uh, parental uh, step-grandfather died 16 years ago. He was 82 years old when he died. But just after he died, we were left with a few unexpected issues. He had not left one, but two girlfriends behind and not told us about them. It was such a scandal in our household. He had his latest girlfriend, who was his next-door neighbour at the nursing home that he was living in, but then we found out he had another girlfriend from the previous nursing home. However, more than this, we found out that he frequently visited this second girlfriend by bus at the old nursing home, even while in a relationship with his current girlfriend. I didn't know whether to be proud of him or ashamed of him, but nevertheless, the thought of my grandfather having two girlfriends was very, very strange. Now, if God came to me and said that my grandfather, who was 18 years younger than Abraham was, if God came to me and said, your grandfather is going to marry one of these women and have a child, I would have said, you've got to be joking. (laughs) I wouldn't have believed this. But you see the question in verse 14. See what it says? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything that God has promised too hard for him? The answer is no, isn't it? Nothing, even though they're old, even though it seems like it can't happen, even though science tells me they're beyond the years of childbearing, even though my powers of observation tell me this, nothing God has promised is too hard for the Lord. Nothing doesn't mean that some things he has promised are too hard. No, nothing means nothing, zero, zip. God will keep his promises no matter what the situation looks like. And so in verse 14, he says, I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. What an amazing promise this is. Well, actually, the promise came 24 years before, didn't it? This is now putting an exact time on it. Next year, still it would have seemed like an eternity for Sarah. She's been waiting over 90 years for a child and now one more year to go by. But but really, could it be true? Well, we can tell in verse 15 that she thought maybe it could be. Have a look at her response in verse 15. Sarah was afraid, it says, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Sarah tries to cover her unbelief. But the Lord knows what is true. The Lord knows her heart. But this promise shows that God is a God of the impossible. And he keeps his promises no matter what the circumstances look like. To see this, we just need to contrast the response of Sarah to the response of a much younger teenage girl living in Nazareth, unwed, but engaged to be married. Despite the circumstances, an angel of the Lord appeared to her and in Luke 1 says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
Mary goes on to ask the mechanics of it, but the final response of Mary is telling, isn't it? I am the Lord's servant, she says. May your word to me be fulfilled. Just as unbelievable as a 90-year-old woman becoming pregnant in a natural way is a virgin becoming pregnant with no earthly father. But Mary trusts in God's promises despite how things look. Mary trusts in God's word and responds by saying, I am the Lord's servant. Friends, how do we respond when we hear the promises of God to us? Do we laugh and think, how could God do that? Or do we hear God's word and respond by saying, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Friends, God is working out his purpose in his time and he keeps his promises despite what the situation looks like. And you know what? He is on our side. God is working for the righteous. And this is the second aspect of the passage that we see. God is on the side of the righteous. When two of the men get up to leave, they head towards Sodom in verse 16. And the Lord stays and chats with Abraham about what will happen to the people of that town. Now, we've already found out back in chapter 13, verse 13, that the people of Sodom were a very sinful people. This is reinforced in verse 20 of chapter 18, when we read that the outcry of their sin has become so great, it has caused God into action. So let's pick up on their conversation in verse 23 to 26. It wasn't read out before. If you've got it there, have a look with me. It says, Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and, spare, and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous and the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, Will not the judge of the earth do right? The conversation becomes about what God is willing and not willing to do for people who are righteous living amongst the wicked. Surely if there's some righteous people in the city, God will not destroy the righteous alongside the wicked people. Surely God doesn't treat the wicked and the righteous alike. Well, God's answer there in verse 26 is no. No, he does not treat the righteous and the wicked the same and will spare even the wickedest of people for the sake of a small amount of righteous people. Well, Abraham keeps on pushing God on his answer and lowers the amount of righteous people from 50 to 45 to 40 to 20 and then finally down to 10. And every time God answers that he would spare the city for even a handful of righteous people. It's a really interesting discussion, isn't it, that we read between Abraham and God. It tells, much, uh, it tells us much about God's actions towards the unrighteous and, and righteous people. Uh, but in one sense, Abraham uh, here is interceding on behalf of Sodom uh, and most likely thinking of Lot. But this is picked up more in, the, uh, in next week's chapter. But rather than seeing it as, as a discussion on whether the righteous and the unrighteous fare the same way or just as an intercessory prayer, it's more a discussion on the character of God. See there in verse 25, Abraham is asking if God will do what is just and right in any given circumstance. Have you ever seen those American war movies or uh, FBI movies that have operations where they find a group of enemy that they're aiming to kill, but then they realize that some of their own people are in the crowd doing their job? They're left with this ethical decision. Do we, do we kill the whole crowd of baddies in order to bring justice, but that might also include killing our own? In most movies I've seen, the FBI or whoever the goodies are end up killing their own people for the sake of the evil people. And they call it collateral damage. It seems in these movies that if you're on the team of the goodies but caught in a crowd of baddies, then don't trust the bigwigs to do what is just and right. 
But this is not the case with God. You see, God will do what is just and right for the sake of anyone who is righteous, even if it means letting sin go unpunished. God will do what is right and just for the sake of the righteous. Who are the righteous? Well, we've seen this over the past few weeks, if you've been tuning in. It's those who have faith, those who believe in God that are righteous, those whom God have declared are righteous. Now, we don't sit on the th- in the throne room of God. We're not always privy to his thoughts on who is and who isn't righteous, except when revealed to us by his word. And we saw the example of this, didn't we, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that righteousness was credited to Abraham by God because he believed God's word. For us today, we are made righteous by faith in Jesus in the same way. Romans chapter 3, verse 22 reminds us righteousness is given through faith in Jesus. In fact, only a few verses later, we read in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that God let the sins committed beforehand in the Old Testament go unpunished to demonstrate his righteousness, that all are justified through faith in Jesus. So for us who believe in Jesus today, God will do what is just and right for those who are righteous, for you and for me. Now you might ask yourself, does this mean that my life will be easier than others in the world? If God does what is just and right for the righteous, that, does that mean that it's an easier life to be a Christian? <laughs> well, the answer, unfortunately, is no. Remember, this was the wrong question to ask of the passage. Our lives will not be easier. We'll still get sick. We'll still die. We'll still have financial troubles. We're not immune from natural disasters and so on. In this way, we live similar lives to those around us. But underlying all of this, as believers... We have the knowledge of the character of God and that by his nature, he will do what is just and right in every circumstance. We have a knowledge that God will keep his promises no matter what the situation looks like around us, that God will act on our behalf in order to bring about his purposes and our salvation. And friends, he has done this through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this should give us the greatest comfort. Romans, 8, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 helps us here when it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. My wife Heather shared a few weeks ago at the 6pm service panel about how this passage helped her through breast cancer. It didn't mean that the journey for her was easy. It didn't mean that uh, even in the hardest times uh, she struggled, but she knew that God was working for her good. You see, sometimes we confuse the good that God has promised in Romans 8.28 for a healthy, hedonistic, pain-free, long earthly life, benefits that the world around us might think are good. In fact, some churches preach this message. But this is not what the Bible teaches us. Rather, when God speaks about the good, he's talking about something far greater than the things we find here on earth, something that will ultimately come to us in eternity but that we see glimpses of here on earth. C.S. Lewis spoke about this in a sermon called The Weight of Glory when he said, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, friends, the good that God offers us is far greater than the good that this world offers us, 
a peace with him, a fellowship of believers, a sense of belonging and, and a hope that this world does not offer. To be part of his family, that means no matter what we go through in this life, whether good or bad, there awaits an eternity for those who trust in him. Yes, we, we see glimpses of this here on earth, but ultimately it's enjoyed in a place where Lewis describes it as infinite joy.